which we were reading earlier in the responsive reading. We'll look at verses 5 and 15. For the past few months, I've been quite concerned about the subject of prayer for two reasons. First, because I need and want to be more prayerful than I have been lately. And second, because so much of what evangelical Christians call prayer today bears too little resemblance to what the Bible calls prayer. For those reasons, I thought that September, as we kind of start off a new church season, um, is a good time to get started on the right foot with prayer. As we think about the purpose of the church, as we've been doing, as we move forward as a church, it's so important that we're praying. And so important, in fact, that I thought we would depart from the normal Sunday school lesson readings for a couple more weeks and focus this week and next week on learning and relearning to pray. We'll start today at the best place to start, the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And let me dive right in with a couple heavy questions. If Jesus taught us how to pray, then why does our prayer so often bear so very little resemblance to what he taught us? And if Jesus stressed that living by or having faith and um, praying with faith is absolutely central to the Christian life, that faith can move mountains. And if we can pray with faith when we know what God's will is, And if Jesus has taught us clearly what God's will is and what we should pray about, then why do we spend so much time praying for other things which we have little confidence and aren't too sure if they are God's will? And so we don't have much faith about praying for them. Are you following me? Now, don't get me wrong. God always loves to hear from his children. He loves it when we talk to Him. He loves it when we bring all of our needs and all of our wishes to Him. And we shouldn't stop doing that for one moment. But how much better to pray the way Jesus taught us to pray? As commentator Dale Bruner put it, the Lord's Prayer is on the short list of Jesus' greatest gifts to His church. Jesus knows how to pray, doesn't He? Jesus knows what the Father is like. He knows what pleases the Father. Jesus knows what the Father's will is. He knows what prayers the Father loves to answer. And knowing all this, and knowing the Father, Jesus has taught us how we should pray. So how does this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, teach us to pray? Well, to answer this question, I, link, I like to think back to a big movie from the 1980s, The Karate Kid. Any of you seen that movie? Yeah. So all the people just around 40 are going, yeah, yeah, we remember it. <laughs> and some of you who had teenagers back in the 80s remember it too. Well, in The Karate Kid, Daniel, a teenage boy, persuades an old karate master, Mr. Miyagi, to teach him karate. So Mr. Miyagi invites Daniel to his house and asks, Mr. Miyagi asks Daniel to wax his cars. And Mr. Miyagi is very particular about how he wants this done. Wax on with the left hand, wax off with the right hand. 
in nice, big, smooth circles. Then he has Daniel paint his fence. And again, he's particular. Brush up with the left hand, brush down with the right hand, or something like that. And Daniel's starting to get impatient. He, he wants to know when he's going to start learning karate instead of doing household chores for Mr. Miyagi. Then Mr. Miyagi wants Daniel to sand his large deck. And again, he's particular the way he wants it done. Well, by the time Daniel gets the deck done, he's hot, he's sore, and he's furious. He feels betrayed. He feels like a slave. Mr. Miyagi was supposed to teach him karate. And he's venting. And then Mr. Miyagi says, hold on. Wax on, wax off. Right, right in the air. Show me. Show me. And then he starts throwing punches at Daniel. And Daniel surprises himself by being able to block the punches. And he suddenly realizes he's been learning karate all along. Learning to pray is like that. God has given us exercises to train us how to pray. He's given us 150 psalms. He's given us the Lord's Prayer. At first, when we pray along with these prayers, they might feel unnatural or artificial and hard and even boring at times. But when we pray these prayers and as we practice, we develop certain habits of the soul which over time allow us to pray freely and naturally. I've been praying the Lord's Prayer for well over a decade, and I've been praying the Psalms on and off for almost as long. And trust me, they will train you how to pray, and they will transform you in the process. So let's get started with the Lord's Prayer. I've given you uh, an outline in the bulletin. Um, it's a full sheet, a white piece of paper. You can pull out. You might want to take good notes this morning to help you as you pray the Lord's Prayer later. I've given you my own translation from the Greek. We're so familiar with the traditional version that I thought some new different words to say the same thing might freshen it up a bit for us. As we look at this passage in Matthew 6, before Jesus begins to pray, he gives us two examples of how not to pray. And we don't have time to look at those in detail, but let me just make one brief comment about the second example Jesus gives us. Jesus warns us not to keep babbling like the pagans who think they'll be heard because of their many words. He reminds us that the Father knows what we need before we even ask Him, and so He gives us just a very simple, short sample of how to pray, the Lord's Prayer. And I think the danger that Jesus is countering here is the danger that we'll turn prayer into a work that we do to try to gain God's favor or earn His favor. When in fact, prayer is just the opposite of a work that we do. Prayer is an expression of trust based totally on God's undeserved favor. I fall into the pagan prayer trap. I'll admit it. Have you ever prayed like, I have through your whole prayer list, and then you've had a feeling of accomplishment. Ah, boy, I really prayed today. <laughs> have you ever said, I can't believe that that good thing happened to me because I hardly even prayed about it? Do you ever feel like you've got to pray again and again and again and put in your time before you can expect God to hear you? God, Jesus says, no, we, we aren't earning anything through our prayers. 
Those are pagan ideas. Prayer isn't about offering our efforts to God. It's about admitting the futility of our efforts and depending on what God, the amazing, awesome, powerful God can do instead. So Jesus teaches us how to pray, how to do this. Pray like this, he says. Not using these specific words necessarily, although they're great words to use, but pray in this sort of way for for these sorts of things. Our Father, who art in heaven. First notice the our. Not my Father, but our Father. Sure, we pray alone, but this is first and foremost a group prayer. And even when we're praying alone, we pray with an awareness that we belong to a spiritual family. We pray for the family, and whenever possible, we pray as a family. Eugene Peterson is right. He puts it well. The community in prayer, the community in prayer, not the individual at prayer, is basic and primary. Our Father. The Americanization of prayer has reversed this clear biblical and human order. Prayer requires community. Our Father. Then once we remember who we're praying with, we remember who we're praying to. Our Father in the heavens. You know, nothing helps my prayer life as much as taking time to remember who I'm praying to. We've been doing that this morning with adoration and confession and thanksgiving. And it's been wonderful. When I rush into all my requests, I get done praying and sometimes I wonder whether I was really even praying at all. Or whether I was just kind of worrying in an upward direction. Was I even really aware of my Father in heaven? So who is this father? Well, in Matthew's gospel, the Lord's Prayer is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's, in fact, right in the dead middle of that sermon. And Jesus tells us a lot in that sermon about what the father is like. Jesus assures us that our father who sees what we do in secret will reward us. Jesus reminds us that our father knows what we need before we ask him. Jesus commands us not to worry, especially about what we'll eat or wear, because our Heavenly Father knows that we need these things. And if He clothes the lily and feeds the sparrows, how much more will He take care of us? Jesus implores us to ask, to seek, to knock, because if we, though we're evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father in Heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? What a wonderful Father we have. A good father who treats us graciously and lovingly with care and concern for what we need. Maybe this father in heaven is like, or or maybe this father is unlike the earthly father that we grew up with. The first work of prayer is working through our images of father. Coming to grips with our own experience of fatherhood in the past. And then coming to recognize and to trust the kind of good, caring father that our God is. Maybe he's like the father we had or maybe he's like the father we wish we had. 
But when we know that we're talking to our good Father, it changes the way that we pray. And then we're ready to move on to the six petitions which make up the bulk of the prayer. Last week we talked about a triangle. This week we'll use a hexagon to remember the Lord's Prayer. There's a copy in your bulletin which you can take home and use later. The first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer are the your petitions, addressing God's concerns, God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. The second three petitions are the our petitions, expressing and addressing our concerns, our bread, our debts, our temptations. First God, then us. Is that the way you pray? I think you'll find that when you pray about what concerns God first, it changes the way you pray about what concerns you. As Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you as well. First God, then us. Now one more thought before we jump into the petitions, and that's just to remind us again that prayer is about trusting God, and so we have to be careful not to make it into a work that we do. It's tempting to pray the Lord's Prayer, at least for me, like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Yes, Lord, I should take your name more seriously. Your kingdom come. Oh, help me to do more to build your kingdom. Your will be done. Uh, Help me to do your will. Me, me, me. But prayer is the opposite of that. Prayer is about taking things off of our plate and putting them back onto God's plate. Prayer is about rest and trust. It's about relinquishment of control. God, hallow your name. Bring your kingdom. Do your will. Phew, I've asked God to do it. Now I don't have to worry about making it all happen. That's praying. God becomes greater. We become less. Notice there's nothing about us in these first three petitions. As one commentator put it, each of these petitions asks for the establishment of the kingdom of God by God for us. Not by us, for God. By God, for us. Sure, as we pray, we'll come to prize God's name and God's kingdom and God's will, and that will move us to action. We have a role to play in this. But prayer is about looking to God to take the lead and putting it on His plate. The first petition then, hallowed be your name. God's name is His reputation. Names are associated with reputations, right? Monica Lewinsky, Osama bin Laden, Manny Ramirez, Mother Teresa, Abraham Lincoln. Each name conveys a reputation. To hallow a name means to treat it as holy, to consider a name, a reputation, to be pure, to be righteous, to be good, to be noble, to be exceptional. So when we're praying, hallowed be your name, we're asking that God have a a stellar and an unmatched reputation in the world. One commentator puts it simply, Dale Bruner, he says, in short, we pray that God's reputation in the world will greatly improve. 
What's God's reputation in America today? Not so good, is it? Does it bother you that God's reputation is suffering? Or have we become so used to it that we don't even think about it? We don't even care about it? Well, Jesus tells us that the first thing that we should be praying for is that God would repair and restore his reputation in the world. Imagine if God had a good reputation. Imagine if people thought of God as good and right and fair and wonderful. As one to be reverenced and worshipped as being awesome and amazing. How might God accomplish this? Answer, by showing himself to be who he really is. Right? When people really see how good and wonderful God is, his reputation will improve. So we're asking God to be all of who God is for the world to see. We're asking God to express all of his character, all of his attributes, so the world will see him for who he truly is. Hallowed be your name. And we're asking for all the distortions and the false gods to be swept out of the way. What a great petition. The second petition is your kingdom come. What's God's kingdom? Here's my definition. It's every space where Jesus gets his way. It's every heart, every habit, every decision and thought, every relationship, every home, every neighborhood, every nation where Jesus is recognized as king so that God's will prevails there. God's will. So connected are thy kingdom come and thy will be done that some interpreters consider them to be one petition. God's kingdom is the very place where God's will is done. And what's God's will? Well, Jesus gave us as good an answer as any when he got up in the synagogue at the beginning of his ministry in Luke 4 there in Capernaum and he read from the prophet Isaiah and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me to announce good news to the poor, to free the captives, to give sight to the blind, to free the oppressed, to bestow God's favor, God's grace. That's God's will. God's will is nothing less than the undoing of everything that's sick and wrong and broken in the world. Until God's creation is restored to its original paradise. Catholic theologian Hans Kung was right when he put it simply, the kingdom of God is creation healed. The kingdom of God is God's great revolution through Jesus Christ against the current world order. That's what we're praying for. And so John Stott concludes, to pray this prayer has revolutionary implications. And theologian Stan Grenz, the late theologian, he added, in prayer, we rebel against the status quo. Thy kingdom come. Boy, I love to pray this prayer. Yes, Lord, may your kingdom come. May it come in my life. May it come in my family. May it come in this church. 
May it come in New York and in the USA. May it come all over the world. Until the day when your son returns and it comes in its completeness forever. Your kingdom come. Third, we pray, your will be done. University College staff worker James Chung writes, we're invited into the space where God is really in charge, where what he wants to happen actually does happen. Dale Bruner points out that since the Lord's prayer is at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus instructs us how to pray, that God's will be done, he's encouraging us to pray, among other things, for the fulfillment of everything that Jesus has just taught in the sermon. That would be a great prayer exercise to do regularly, to pray through that sermon, asking that God's will be done, asking that God make it happen. Well, that rounds out the first half of the hexagon. The first three God-focused petitions where we put God's concerns first and we look to Him to do these things. Just one more note before we move on to the next three. And that is that we're to ask that these things be done on earth as they're now done perfectly in heaven. I'm assuming here as many interpreters do that um, on earth as in heaven applies to each of the first three petitions. Hallowed be your name on earth as in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. And if that's the case, then we pray not to escape this earth for the perfection of heaven, but rather that God bring the perfection of heaven down to this earth. And so we learn to care about what God cares about, the redemption and the restoration of his whole creation. And after we've got our mind focused on that, now we're finally at a good place to ask for our own concerns. Again, there are three. First, give us enough bread for today. This is a subversive little request. In 2002, when I was in my final semester of graduate school, I was starting to worry about what I'd do when I graduated. Would I find a job? Josiah had been born. I had a family to provide for now. And I was using the Lord's Prayer as an outline for my prayers And when I got to the daily bread part, I was asking God to take care of these financial needs after graduation. But then it started to sink in. Give us today our daily bread. I wasn't praying for my bread today. I was praying for my bread a couple months from now. And I started to realize as I wrestled with this that my prayer was actually an expression of my worry. And not my faith. I sensed God saying to me, if you trust me, don't worry about praying for tomorrow or next month as if you're going to accomplish anything by it. Trust me today. I'll take care of you today. When you get there, trust me for that day too. I'll still be there. I'll still take care of you. I'm your father. This lesson's reinforced in the book of Exodus. We read there about God teaching his people to trust him and and how God provided them with their daily bread. He provided them with manna. And what did God insist? He, He insisted that they only collect enough manna for one day. 
He wanted them to trust him day by day for what they needed. The wise man agrees in, in Proverbs 30, verse 8. He prays, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Jesus warns us in Luke 12 not to be like the rich fool who has such a bumper crop that he tears down his barns and he builds bigger ones and he says to himself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God says, you fool, this very night, your life will be required of you. And Jesus concludes, this is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. Well, does this mean we shouldn't save for tomorrow or for retirement? I don't think so. I think Jesus took for granted that a farmer needed to save enough seed to get through the winter and, and to plant the next spring. Proverbs encourages us to learn from the ant who doesn't spend all that he has right away, but stores away in the summer for the lean times in the winter. But there's a difference between saving for what you know you'll need in the future and socking away some extra peace of mind money just so you can sleep better at night, so you have a little bit extra. The first is wisdom. The second is sin and unbelief that we really have a father who cares for us day by day. Saving too much, Jesus teaches us, the Bible teaches us, is spiritually hazardous. Because trusting God is the most important thing that there is. So the question I try to ask myself when making a decision about savings is this. In making this decision, am I trusting God in this decision? Or am I trusting in this money that I'm about to sock away? Give us today our daily bread. Give us enough bread for today. I think Martin Luther was right when he wrote that Jesus here meant not just bread, but everything necessary for the preservation of this life, like food, a healthy body, good weather, house, home, wife, children, husband, if it was Kathy Luther, Luther instead of Martin Luther, children, good government, and peace. Yet John Stott reminds us, although we pray for all of these basic needs, that by bread, Jesus means the needs, the necessities, rather than the luxuries of life. Saving too much is spiritually hazardous, so is spending too much. Because there are so many others in need, and there's so much kingdom work to be done and to be funded. And we can't pray this prayer, give us our daily bread, because it's our daily bread. It's giving us our daily bread. We can't pray it without praying for the rest of us who don't have enough bread to eat. When I pray this prayer, I often think of, of the persecuted Christians in prison whose families have no one to provide for them. For the refugees from famines and wars and floods, for the unemployed and the underemployed, and as I pray, I become aware that I might be a part of the answer to those prayers. 
After all, God often feeds me by giving the bread to you and vice versa. Arthur Bors is right in his book on the Lord's Prayer. He says, woe, woe to the persons or institutions or economic systems that keep people hungry. They stand between the God-given gift of food and God's intended recipients. Give us, give us our daily bread. A subversive little request. Next, we move from our physical needs to our spiritual needs. We pray, forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. Each day, we confess our sins to God. We keep short accounts with God, and we, we keep the air clean by receiving and drinking in God's abundant daily grace. We also recognize our need to pass this grace around. Jesus makes it clear down in verse 15. If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Has that verse ever troubled you? Yeah. I mean, aren't we saved by God's grace alone apart from anything we do? Now Jesus says we've got to forgive others as a condition to receiving God's grace. How can it be grace if there's a condition? Well, pastor and theologian John Piper puts it really well. He, he says, the fight against bitterness, against unforgiveness, is really also the fight against unbelief. We're saved by grace through faith. God's grace does us no good unless we believe in it, unless we put our trust in it. And how do we know we really believe in God's grace? We know we're trusting in it when we can forgive others, Jesus is teaching us. If we can't forgive others, that tells us that we haven't really fully believed yet that God has forgiven us. We haven't fully grasped God's grace. We're not depending on it. Now, of course, this doesn't mean forgiveness comes easily or all at once. Sometimes God has to heal our hearts before we can forgive others. And that's a process. And this is the place in our praying. This is our place in the Lord's Prayer. In, in this environment of grace. For that healing in our own hearts to begin to take place. So we can both receive and give God's grace freely. And fully put our trust in it. And have strong assurance that God holds us in our hands. That He loves us. That He saved us. That we're forgiven. One final note on this petition, a question actually. When Jesus says that we're to forgive our debtors, does he just mean our spiritual debtors? Or does he mean our physical debtors too? And I'll leave that for you to think about. All right, let's move on quickly to the last petition. And do not bring us into temptation, but free us from the evil one. Now, there's two problems with this petition, and they both have to do with how to translate the, the Greek word that we translate, temptation. Um, the Greek word, peirazo, can be translated, you might know, both temptation and testing. So here are the problems. First, why would Jesus have us pray, lead us not into temptation? Because God says he cannot and does not lead us into temptation. He does not tempt us. 
James 1, 13, God does not tempt us. So why would we even need to pray that? Second problem, on the other hand, why would Jesus have us pray, lead us into testing? Because God tells us he does test us, and we're to count it pure joy when our faith is tested. James 1, 2. Do you see the problem? Well, I like the way that Daryl Johnson translates this petition. I think it captures the sense of it. God, when you lead us into a test, do not let the evil one turn that test into a temptation. We pray that for ourselves. We pray it for one another. For as John Stott concludes, the devil is too strong for us. We're too weak to stand up to him, but our Heavenly Father will deliver us if we call upon him. So here's the challenge from, from the Lord's Prayer. Let me suggest two ways that the Lord's Prayer can teach us to pray. One is that we can use it as an outline for our praying. We can pause after each line of the Lord's Prayer and we can expand and flesh out what we want to say on that subject. Two, the other way we can pray it is we can take each um, specific concern that we have and we can pray the Lord's Prayer about that concern. Uh, let me do that now as an example. As you know, I've been concerned about the continuing health care debate in our nation, which will affect so many things. So to pray the Lord's Prayer about that. Our Father, you are much wiser than us. And you care about our bodies and our health. Hallowed be your name. In this whole debate, your voice has been largely silent and shut out. Do something to show yourself to be our great healer and provider. Your kingdom come and your will be done. You care about the poor. You care about putting together broken people and broken bodies. You care about justice. I pray that the outcome of this whole debate would be just, especially for the poor. Give us our daily bread. Help us. Um, help especially those who struggle to afford the care that they need and face the fear and the risk of going bankrupt because of their medical concerns. Give them their daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us for not taking better care of our bodies. Forgive us for depending on medicine more than we depend on you. And so worrying about things we should be trusting you for. And God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When we face sickness or related financial stress, and those test our faith, I pray that you, wouldn't, that you would cause those things to draw us closer to you instead of those things tempting us to self-medicate, to trust in money, to trust in other things, to worry, to be drawn away from you. Amen. So, there's an example.
All right, now in the school of prayer, there's both lecture and lab. And it's lab time. Um, as Dave and I were preparing for this morning, um, we wanted to give you a chance to pray, and we're going to take a little risk here. We're going to ask you to get into groups of three or four and to wax on, wax off together. Um, and to, um, to practice this second way of using the Lord's Prayer, to take one concern that you have and to apply the Lord's Prayer to it. Um, you could do this like I did it, by expounding on each line of the Lord's Prayer, applying it to that thing. You could do it by just stating your concern and then just praying the words of the Lord's Prayer, maybe sticking your concern in wherever they fit. Or you can pass if you're not comfortable doing this. You can just say pass and pray in your hearts. So um, we'll take a few minutes and we'll pray in groups.